banking and a role model for responsibility. Hello everybody and welcome to the conversation. I'm David Schuster. In this era of crony capitalism and reckless risk, there is a new book out about one of the greatest bankers in all of history. And it underscores just what a terrific role model he was in terms of responsibility, not only to his creditors and bankers and debtors, but also to society at large. And this uh, we're talking about Edmund Safra, the book is titled A Banker's Journey, How Edmund Safra Built a Global Financial Empire. And this was written by bestselling author and journalist Daniel Gross. Dan is one of the leading journalists of our time in terms of business and finance, economics, politics, and so much more. He has authored eight books. Dan, welcome to the conversation, great to have you. David, it's a pleasure to see you, pleasure to be here. Dan, you've written so many books, why this one? Why Edmund Safra, why tell his story? Uh, briefly, this is a, a figure that not many people know about. He was a man who was born in 1932 in Beirut, went to work in Milan at the age of 15, trading, uh, working for his family business. And over the course of his life, founded four banks on three different continents. He died tragically in 1999 in a fire. His banks were publicly held. There was one called Republic of New York that was a startup in 1965 and grew to the 11th largest bank. Uh, in the US when it was sold in 1999. <clears throat> but compared with his contemporary bankers, uh, he had a very kind of upside down view of what the purpose of banking was and what the purpose of a banker was. He came from a world where there was no such thing as deposit insurance in Beirut and Lebanon in the 50s and 60s where people were so insecure. The main thing they wanted to know is that their money was safe. So he took very little risk. Um, he was reluctant to lend money out on banks. Credit cards or subprime mortgages or things like that. He always made kind of sure loans, helped facilitate trade and finance. And he always said that nobody will lose a penny from my banks until I have lost everything. That's such a different sort of um, path than most people would perceive of most, you know, capitalists and bankers today. So, how did he pull it off? Because obviously he had more challenges than a lot of his contemporaries because he was trying to do things a certain way. Yeah. So he was very much a capitalist. He was very much interested in making money. He was a billionaire in his lifetime when his bank sold in 1999. It was for three billion dollars. But he had a, a kind of a genius for working in different types of cultures. Said he grew up in Beirut. His family was a part of a multi-generational banking family that originated in Syria. So they had a small bank in Beirut that catered to the local community. He moved the family to Brazil in the early 1950s and created a local bank there. He created like a private bank for wealthy people in Switzerland. And when he came to New York in the mid-60s, he created a, a consumer bank for middle-class people. Uh, the whole thing there was you brought in and you opened an account and you would get a television. Um, so that type of bank. So he did different types of banking everywhere he went. And his main focus, um, he was from the Jewish community in Beirut, traced their origins to Syria. This was a time of great displacement, people having to flee, fleeing civil war, being kicked out of their homes. And for this kind of global community of not just his depositors, but the people in his world, he was seen as somebody you went to if you needed help, if you needed money, if you needed your assets and money like taken care of so that when you went to start a new life, you would have something to do it with. I was struck by how you describe him as something of a mysterious sort of man, that he was a pretty private, um, that despite the fact that he had these you know, fine suits that he liked to wear and he liked to stay at really nice hotels, that he wasn't, he didn't cut a huge sort of public figure. So his banks were publicly held, which meant they were traded. You could buy 
shares in them, and they reported their earnings every quarter, just like any other American bank, like J.P. Morgan Chase. Um, but he was, you know, he was not someone who would ever go on CNBC. He didn't do a lot of interviews. Uh, his view was that a banker had to be discreet, and he also kind of believed in, um, you know, the evil eye. That one of the ways you ward off bad things happening is by avoiding sort of too much publicity, too much limelight. He also did a lot of good things. I mean, never mind sort of the banking, but there are countless hospitals and institutions that essentially carry his name. Um, is that did that surprise you? And as you sort of learn more about him, not at all. I think the the, the story uh, of the Spanish's ethic uh, as a banker was intricately connected to his ethic as a Sephardic Jew, a Jew who came from Syria and from Lebanon, which is that in that community, the people who had means were expected not only expected, sort of demanded to serve on committees to help people. Um, and in the files I went through, um, in addition to finding like institutional donations, like giving money to rebuild synagogues or build hospitals or create professorships, um, there were literally thousands of examples of sending, you know, someone who was getting married, sending them money, someone who needed a, a new start in life, sending them money, just literally thousands of these. So he did it on a very personal basis. Again, this is going back to the 1950s and 1960s. And he again, thought as part of his, I wouldn't say superstition, but belief system that if you did well, you made some money, that was an occasion to donate some money. And it ultimately evolved into a more institutional uh, purpose, which was he set up a foundation. And when he died, he left most of his assets to that foundation, which in the 23 years since his death has focused on medical research, particularly Parkinson's, uh, building up hospitals, treatment centers, uh, education, and religious uh, affairs. You mentioned his death, uh, 1999, and you point out that there was something uh, remarkably tragic about it because he had Parkinson's and he was relatively young. Um, tell me a little bit more about that sort of aspect and, and what his sort of final years were like. Sure, well, he was always someone who was mature beyond his years and looked older than he was. Like I said, he went. his father sent him to go work in uh, Italy when he was 15. And you look at photos from that era, it looked like he was already 30. By the time he was in his 50s, he looked like sort of an older man. He was stricken with Parkinson's um, in his early 60s. Uh, and I say the story is a story of triumph because a story about someone who makes a lot of money, it's always they created this institution, they made all these profits, they amassed all this capital, they did all these great things, they were celebrated. But his story is a uh, it's a bit of a tragedy on a few fronts. One is that he became too ill to really manage this whole uh, system that he had built up. The second was that you know he regarded all his businesses as family businesses, and he didn't have his own children, and didn't really feel like kind of comfortable elevating someone else to take on uh, this empire that he had built. And the third was that he he died in a fire that had been um, sort of set uh, set by a member of his household staff. And he ended up dying of suffocation. This was 1999. So he died at the age of 66, prematurely um, and in a tragic manner. You mentioned that uh, he didn't have any sort of children and that unlike a lot of you know financiers and people in today's age, that it's a celebration when you sell your business and you make you know billions. You point out that in his book that he was sad about his yeah, sort of businesses when he- Exactly, passed. again, this was someone who, <clears throat> but his, Great grandparents had been bankers. They were like a family back in Syria, and they sent like one brother to Istanbul, one brother to Alexandria, one brother to Beirut. This was in their kind of heritage and in their gene. And it was something you were born to do and something you were supposed to pass on 
your children and to your children's children. And so for him, the, the concept of this bank not existing after his life was, you know, uh, a very painful thing to contemplate. Um, when he sold his banks, he sold his two banks in 1999 for $10 billion, which was the highest price paid in cash for a bank uh, to that point in American history. Um, friend came from him to Geneva and said, look, you know, fantastic, look, look what you've accomplished. And he said in French, you know, it's terrible. I've sold my children. I've sold my babies. And this was a, you know, for him, it was a personal, I, won't, I don't want to say it was a failing, but it was not something that he personally celebrated at the time. Dan, all of us who celebrate your books know that you uh, are impeccable in terms of your sort of research and, and how much energy you put into sort of the research aspect before you do your writing. Uh, when you're talking about a character, a real life character who has uh, traces his roots to Beirut and to Syria and to so many other sort of places that are normally kind of hard to get to, was this difficult putting putting this together and finding people who knew him who could tell his story? Yeah, on one level, part of the tragedy is that the places he came from literally don't exist anymore. I mean, Aleppo is not, not only is the Jewish community there long gone, just Aleppo itself as a city uh, is long gone. And Beirut is really not what it was in the 40s and 50s when it was this cosmopolitan center that was very tolerant. There was a great deal of coexistence. Um, I was afforded the opportunity to access uh, in digitized fashion his personal archives, which had letters going back in six or seven different languages uh, to the 1930s and 1940s. And in addition, in the years after his death, um, people had conducted interviews with people who knew him from when he was in second grade in Beirut to when he was building his banks to when he was older in the 1980s in New York. So I had all these transcripts of these interviews that had been done. And I tried, it was like a, a big jigsaw puzzle that you dump out onto the table, the thousand pieces. And if you can understand how they connect together, you're able to put together a portrait. And what do you think Edmund Soffer would say about banking and finance today if he were alive? And, and are there lessons that you think there are other, you know, uh, corporate titans can take uh, from his life and his career? Yeah, you know, in 2008, remember when the financial crisis happened and the banks all got bailed out and a lot of people ended up getting bonuses. Somebody wrote a piece and the, the headline was, you know, where have you gone, Edmund Safra? The idea being that if he was in charge or he was running his banks and he had been alive, we wouldn't have had this situation where the taxpayers had to bail out the companies, but somehow everybody was made whole. He always owned like 30% of his bank, so he was the biggest shareholder. And he always feared that if something happened, because he was from Lebanon, because he was always, wherever he went, he was an outsider, there was no way the government was going to rescue him. So he always felt that everything was on him. He shouldered that responsibility willingly and incorporated that into the type of management. So he didn't make those types of loans that would come back and could really sink your whole ship. Um, so that sense of, of kind of personal responsibility, that what you owe your depositor is their money back and not to take untoward risks with what they've entrusted to you, because it's not just cash, it's not just a balance, it's really, it's your dignity when you have a bank account. The book is A Banker's Journey, How Edmund Safra Built a Global Financial Empire. It is authored by the one and only Daniel Gross, esteemed business journalist, best-selling author of eight books. Dan, thanks so much for joining us. Appreciate you being on the conversation. David, it's a great pleasure to see you. Great pleasure to be with you always. You got it.
Welcome back to the conversation. I'm David Schuster. If you think about it on the Democratic side, at least we have a lot of older leaders in this country. President Joe Biden is 79 years old. House Speaker Nancy Pelosi, Steny Hoyer and Congressman Clyburn, her deputies, they are in their 80s. On the Republican side, Mitch McConnell is 80. Well, there's a fascinating new look at gerontocracy as it's being called by a business insider about what all this means for our democracy. It's written by Kimberly Leonard. She is a politics and policy correspondent for Insider. And again, the series is called Red, White and Gray, all about sort of the impact and what it means, the benefits and the risks for having older leaders of this democracy. Kimberly, thanks for, thanks for being on the conversation. Thanks for including our series. So first of all, obviously somebody who's in their 70s has a very sort of different cognitive ability than somebody in their 40s. Explain the basics there. Yeah, well, one of the things that we wanted to show with our project was to have a story specifically focused on the science of the brain. After all, our brains change a lot as we age and they start to change earlier in life than a lot of people might think. They actually start to change in our 30s. 30s and 40s, they start to shrink. So people might begin to notice, you know, that they're forgetting things, that they might be a little bit slower in coming up with answers. That's all a completely normal part of aging. And um, as we get even older, our brains change even more. We're a little bit slower to recall things. We might have a harder time retaining information. And uh, that's all very normal for people as they age. Um, when it becomes more of a health issue is obviously when you have something like Alzheimer's or even a mild cognitive impairment, and that can develop uh, more frequently among older adults. And that's what happened to Ronald Reagan at age 77. There's a great anecdote that you describe of Trent Lott, the senator from Mississippi, going in and talking to President Reagan and President Reagan not sort of remembering or understanding who he was. That's right. That's right. And, you know, we know that about five years after former President. Ronald Reagan left office that he announced publicly for the first time that he had Alzheimer's disease. With Alzheimer's, it's a very gradual illness. So you can begin to have symptoms for a very long time before it's even diagnosed. Um, so we, we, as far as we can tell, or as far as historians have identified, he didn't have the disease in such a way that would have impacted the way that he was as president or his decision making. But he may have had occasional um, situations in which he didn't recognize someone. But it's hard to tell. It's hard to tell whether that was something tied to Alzheimer's or whether it was what's called mild cognitive impairment, and that develops before someone develops Alzheimer's, or whether it was just a normal part of aging. And so we need to be really careful not to make any assumptions about people. Um, however, we have very little information about the health of our elected officials. And, and so that does sort of create this environment in which rumors can spread or people are guessing or you know non-medical experts are, are making determinations about people's health that aren't rooted in um, in fact but may just be part of you know rumors or, or may just be what they're seeing might just be a normal part of aging well the the normal part of aging and the, the rumors that certainly exist about President Biden have been running rampant and that may stay say more about sort of the political environment we're in than the actual health issues of President Biden nonetheless it seems like it's it's difficult for people who want to take an objective look at President Biden to sort of separate sort of his verbal tics. The fact that he was a stutterer, that he's sort of been something of a, uh, he, he, he's, he, he's had some sort of issues with his speaking style for years and separating that out from, well, whatever impact his age may be having on him. It's very hard to do. It's very hard to separate out 
this from politics. Um, and we saw it with former President Trump as well. Uh, let's not forget he's only about three and a half years younger than President Biden. So um, you know they're close in age. And if let's say they both run in 2024, age is going to be on the ballot. It's going to be an issue. It's going to be an issue if Trump runs against a younger candidate. It's going to be an issue if Biden runs against a younger candidate. And Without information, which we really don't have, I mean, let's not forget, Biden has not made his personal physician available for questions to the press. He had COVID, they did not bring out his personal doctor. And um, so, you know, that then leads to a lot of questions about what could have happened and, you know, how his cognitive function is and so forth. And so he keeps saying, because he was asked about this uh, recently, and he keeps saying, look, just watch me. And so, um, you know, when I talk to aging experts, they say, it's all about, it should be all about people's policies. It shouldn't be about their age, but it becomes an attack line. And we've seen it done so many times. And we actually have another story as part of our red, white, and gray series that looks at, I wanna say we put together about 23 different instances in history in which during presidential races, the age question has been on the ballot or has been used as a weapon. Is there something though to the criticism and regardless of whether it's President Biden or Donald Trump or Democratic leaders like Pelosi, I mean, these are positions that normally you would consider to be exhausting with incredible stress, incredible pressure on them. That a society would want somebody maybe in their 40s or maybe 50s because that's the sort of energy it would take to keep track of everything that these jobs seem to require. Even if a president, as President Trump did, wants to schedule things so that he doesn't have to jump into the details. <laughs> well, see, that's the big question, right? And the thing that we have to remember, so I, I did a story on the aging brain. But one of the things that I learned is that, yes, there are general things that happen as we age that we can sort of expect, but these are generalizations. There are people that age very, very differently. And one thing I would caution our viewers is that don't don't project your own experiences with age or those of your parents or your grandparents onto someone else. There are people who feel incredibly motivated by retirement, there are other people who hate it and who really fall apart when they have to retire because they feel that they need to be doing something and have more purpose. So just because someone at 80 might say, I could never imagine having a job like the presidency, doesn't mean that somebody else couldn't. So um, we just need to be careful in how we how we generalize people. I mean, the thing is that the presidency, yes, it might be exhausting, but it also creates an incredible amount of meaning and purpose and something in which you can really shape our world. And so um, being able to sort of assess that and suss out what's you know, the differences in aging, I think is really important and something I tried to underscore in my story, while at the same time recognizing that yes, there are things that happen with age. Um, but we also have to remember too, that wisdom is a big part of aging. And so there are, and we have a story actually, as part of our red, white and gray series that looks not just at some of the uh, benefits and um, uh, negatives of aging, but also looks at some young members of Congress and some of the ways that they've struggled because they haven't developed the wisdom that only comes with experience and age. You mentioned meaning and purpose, and that sort of takes me to my next question, and I think you've already answered it. But is that sort of the key in terms of being able to understand whether people are able to sort of age and sort of keep it together or not? And the reason I point this out is Dan Rather, who is now 92 years old, has a substack that is more 
thoughtful and better written than journalists who are 32 or any of us ever have been able to write. I mean, it is remarkable how somebody that age can be so sort of together and so with it and so thoughtful. And clearly he feels sort of a purpose by what he's doing. Is that sort of one of the keys? Well, there is something known as super agers, um, which they're being studied. This essentially people who have the same cognitive abilities when they're over 85 years old than they did in their 50s and 60s. Now, these are extraordinary people. Uh, they haven't really found a way to sort of, you know, have health behaviors that would allow you to be a super ager. In other words, they've even found people who are very overweight or who smoke or, you know, who have all these behaviors that are supposed to make aging more difficult, who still are super agers and have great cognitive function. Um, so everyone is really different. And uh, we certainly know about a lot of folks who uh, in their more advanced age have, have learned um, or taken on some major tasks that other people wouldn't. And uh, embracing the differences is, is a positive thing. Uh, while also recognizing that because we don't have a lot of transparency around our elected officials and their health, that that can instead bring in a lot of questions. And so any any issues that may exist, we just might not ever know about. In putting together this uh, this piece, and uh, you described it as the American gerontocracy, which is I think is, is brilliant. Um, was there anything that surprised you as you put together the data and the research and all of this? Well, I think um, being able to see just how much the brain can change over time. Um, I'm, I'm in my 30s. I didn't know that my brain had already begun to change and shrink. Although, you know, every once in a while, I'll, I'll forget where I put down my phone or where I put my shoes, and I'm looking around my apartment. So, uh, you know, once it once I realized that that was a reality, I certainly, um, you know, began to identify it a little bit better. But, um, you know, the the brain is the most complex part of the human body and we wanted to really through this piece be able to show that uh, there are changes that come with age that are physical that people can see and those should not matter there are also changes to the brain that can happen some are positive and some are more challenging for our elected leaders and being able to identify what's what we're just sort of in the dark about it and so um i i continually am amazed that that we have a system in which um, there's no information about our elected officials um, as far as their health goes. Oh, and to that point, if there was an opportunity to look at Joe Biden's records or Donald Trump or anybody who's you know mm -hmm. of a certain age who's running for political office or seeking reelection, what are the sort of things that you would either want to ask the doctor that you would want to look at in their medical records? Well, I, the cognitive function piece would probably be the biggest piece of that. Um, I don't think that there are, I don't think that any aging experts that I spoke with would be concerned about any sort of physical impairments, whether it be, you know, trouble hearing, um, trouble walking, uh, vision issues. Those, those can all be, um, helped with, with help from AIDS and then, um, and other things. Um, early signs of mild cognitive impairment would be important to see. Um, and I should add, we have we have received some records from President Biden. We have received some records from President Trump, um, from former President Trump. But the but it's not it's never a it's never a consistent format that we get from them. And the the really interesting thing is that at a lot of top U.S. businesses. CEOs and others, top executives are required to undergo what's known as the executive physical at hospitals. And so this isn't something that isn't done. It is done in other parts of our society. It's just that there's a lot invested in individual candidates and in parties and in their staff and so forth. And so uh, that's why it becomes entangled with the idea of politics.
It is a uh, it is a fascinating uh, story and a terrific series. It's called Red, White, and Gray. It's an insider, and this has been written by Kimberly Leonard. She is a politics and policy correspondent for Insider. Uh, Kimberly, terrific work, and thanks so much for sharing with us today. We appreciate it. Thank you. And that'll do it for this edition of the conversation. On behalf of Asher Cofield, Craig Lowry, Gina Kim, and the rest of the gang at the Young Turks, I'm David Schuster. Thanks for watching.